climate change is usually presented as an environmental problem, but we are seeing bushfires, drought and flood. It's also very much a health issue. Indeed, the World Health Organization has described climate change as the defining issue for public health in the 21st century. So how will we cope with increasing heat waves? Well, that's a very relevant question right now because parts of West Australia have been experiencing temperatures of over 40 degrees. Now here to help me discuss these matters is Dr. Colin Butler, and Colin was the first health contributor to the IPCC in 2014, and he was arrested for civil disobedience over climate change and protesting against Australian coal exports. Uh, Colin is an honorary professor at the Australian National University, and he's the lead author in a chapter on our new book, which I am co-editor, published by Springer, Sustainability and the New Economics. Hello, Colin, and welcome, and pleased to have your company. Hello, Rod. It's great to be here. Look, I wasn't the first health contributor. I was just the first one to be arrested. A health contributor started in 1996, IPCC report. Oh, okay, I'll have to see if I can work on my own arrest record then. Now, uh, climate change affects us in many different ways, but as I mentioned, uh, health of humans is not often one that's discussed. But how serious would you say that is? Well, like the uh, WHO says, I think climate change can be conceptualised as the greatest uh, public health problem we face this century. Uh, Of course, it interacts with other factors too, things which Tony McMichael, my late mentor, called uh, planetary overload. It's not climate change on its own, but it's climate change interacting with the world, almost holding a a gun to its head and climate change um, making the, uh, the firing of this gun even more likely. Uh, what people don't understand sufficiently is we're, we're just at the very beginning st- stages of anthropogenic warming. Um, so, you know, me now 67, if I live to 100, I'm likely to see very severe effects. But children, if I had any, I, I fear if we continue with this sort of denial, head in the sands, business as usual, they really will see the collapse of civilization. Uh, in many in many parts of the world, a sort of fragmentary sort of retreat, which could then lead to a, a dark age. I know it sounds a bit melodramatic, but I came to these conclusions about 10 years ago, and then I, I got arrested in 2014 because I became so frustrated by uh, the, the, slow, the slow progress and I wanted to sig- signal to my colleagues and the wider community that this is, a, is as WHO said, a really profound risk. Uh, I conceptualise climate change as affecting human health through direct effects such as heat waves, indirect effects such as changes in vector-borne diseases or mosquito-borne diseases and other infectious diseases. But in the long run, I, I fear it's going to contribute to mass migration, famine, uh, food insecurity, higher food prices, riots, and eventually 
it's a conflict. As, but as I say, not acting solely, but interacting with with pre, other pre-existing factors, such as you know ethnic conflict, competition over scarce resources. So one of the major themes of the new Springer book is the role of growth, and we seem to be addicted to growth, human population, but also in GDP consumption and all the spin-off effects of that. Would you agree that that's one of the key drivers behind our current predicament? Yeah, we're kind of addicted to outdated ways of thinking, the discipline of ecological economics, which tries to redefine measures of growth, you know, it's 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 quite thriving, really. It's quite uh, venerable. It goes back to uh, J.S. Mill in the 19th century. But the, the reality is that ecological economics has got virtually no purchase in the real world. Occasionally, academics um, might tout its benefits and occasionally... Bureau's statistics will try and work something out. But in the real world, it counts for nothing. The real world is chasing this illusion of endless economic growth as conventionally defined. And, you know, as Meadows had all said in The Limits to Growth, uh, published in 1972, this process uh, cannot, cannot go on. And I'm afraid the sustainable development goals fall into the same trap of there's this paradox where they... They want to produce sustainability and well-being for all, but they all but they want to do this by increasing economic growth as conventionally measured. It's it's really um, intellectually bankrupt, and I and I think part of the problem is that the people with with that hold the the, the purse strings, they you know including for grants, they don't want to fund. Um, People, you know, who, who point to these deeper, deeper problems. It's, so it's just, it's very. Uh, academia is now very. I think it's corrupted, actually. Um, just the pursuit for short-term gain at the expense of long-term risk. Do you think that the reasons why something like the Sustainable Development Goals aren't really sustainable is to do with it's delivering an unpalatable message to people? but also the influence of vested interests? Yeah, uh, I think the Sustainable Development Goals were framed by people who may, you could call them good, um, well-meaning perhaps, I don't know any of them in person, but I think that they're a kind of elite, completely out of touch with the real world, completely out of touch, and they've produced this sort of mythical stuff which is supposed to reassure humanity that people up the top are taking these risks seriously. The sustainable is a kind of utopian fantasy. They, they say we're going to eliminate uh, hunger and poverty by, by 2030. If they could say we're going to halve it or quarter it or reduce it by 20%, it would kind of be a bit more believable, but they say they're going to completely abolish it. I mean, they're in cloud cuckoo land. I'm very angry about them, and, and Millennium Development Goals weren't any better. And then what, part of the problem with these things is you see creative accounting and how these things are measured. So with the Millennium Development Goals, as we got closer to 2015, um, all of a sudden things like hunger was supposed to be improving in the world, but there was a lot of shifting in how things were measured, and um, which I published on, but hardly anyone's interested in that level of detail. They just People want to kind of live in a sort of 
fairy tale land where they just want comforting stories. And um, if you tell them if we carry on as business as usual, we're going to risk collapse of civilization by 2050 or 2080, people just they just turn off. They don't want to hear it. And one of the things I've been trying to develop is this idea of a, so, a social vaccine. You know, how do you communicate the right mixture of hope and despair to convey, uh, to, to impel action. If you tell everyone everything's going to be fine, like the Sustainable Development Goals do, or we're going to solve all this completely by 2013, it's, uh, I think it turns people off. Um, but if you tell people that we're doomed by 2030, that also turns people off. So how do, how do you get a sort of realistic uh, measure of hope, um, hope and concern? Yes, it's it's a tricky tricky problem between putting a sugar coating on it and between just making it seem so hopeless that people give up. Now, one of the reasons why we wanted the health chapter in the Springer book is because it makes it more personal. Many of the the outcomes of climate change, environmental destruction. Uh, abstract. So if a coral reef in the Indian Ocean starts to bleach, well, I can't see it. But I, I can relate to th- things that happen that affect uh, human health. So let, let's talk through some of those. And in your chapter, you start off with coal-fired power stations. Of course, uh, you got arrested for protesting against coal exports. But uh, let's look at some of the impacts of what comes out of a chimney of a, a coal-fired power station, for example? Well, as, as well as carbon dioxide, a lot of particulate matter comes out, small, you know, dust particles that can go deep into people's lungs and so far into the person's lung that it actually gets into the bloodstream and even into the brain. So it contributes not only to lung disease but also heart disease and probably... Um, dementia and neurological disease. So a lot of it's a dose effect and it depends how old you are. And if you, if you smoke, you're going to be more vulnerable. But the, the coal-fired coal power stations, you know, they, they aggravate um, many forms of chronic disease. And if you get a high dose, as in some parts of the world, uh, like in India or China, it, it can take up to sort of 10 years off your, off your lifespan. And not only that, but perhaps for the last 20, 30 years of your life, you've, you've got chronic, chronic disease of different kinds. As some of your listeners would know, coal was very common in, in, in Britain until, um, until about 1952. And at that time in Britain in the 40s and so on, virtually every person over the age of 40 had chronic, chronic uh, wheeze. It was con- sort of considered normal. But we now know it was, it was largely from the exposure to the coal, the coal smoke. And, and, of course, uh, as well as the dust, it produces uh, vast quantities of carbon dioxide, uh, you know, the world's most important greenhouse gas. There are also some less well-known things that come out of coal-fired power, and mercury is one. Do you want to talk about that? Well, that's true. Um, and mercury, I think it gets disseminated into the oceans and then comes back into humans through um, eating marine products, I suppose, particularly, particularly fish. But I do think it's true that coal burning is the biggest cause for uh, mercury pollution in the, in the ocean and, and hence the, the, 
marine food web. Don't know much more about it than that. Sorry, what does mercury do to oh. the human body? Well, again, at a large dose, it's, it's neurotoxic. Um, pregnant women are, are warned not to eat too much fish. Of certain, I think it's more like shark. It's some, some species you know, have higher levels of mercury than others. You know, eating fish is, is good in general, but too much of it harmful. Uh, so I think it can affect um, babies. And there was um, in, in Japan in the 1950s, there was an episode of Minima, called Minamata disease it was in the Bay of Minamata, and there was some sort of mercury processing plant uh, near the, near the harbour, and it, and the, it got into the fish there, and that was very high levels. That wasn't from coal, though. That was from some industrial pollution at Minamata in Japan. So I, I think probably the, the main effects, the risk of, of uh, arsenic from uh, on health was mainly recognised around that time. And I, it, I don't remember the details, but it was severe neurological condition in uh, adults and, um, you know, trouble walking and probably trouble thinking and it's just terrible for your health. But that, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, it is reg better regulated and there, you don't see so much of that anymore. So it's more probably a subtle effect on lots and lots of people. But some of the other impacts of climate change are beginning to be really felt now and uh, extreme weather, heat waves and so on. Uh, do you want to talk through the impact of those on human health? Well, well, just at the moment, there's severe flooding in South Australia and it's affecting the road lines and the train lines, the supply lines to both Western Australia and the Northern Territory. So it's a kind of an indirect effect of climate change. I mean, there have been floods in South Australia before, but we know with climate change, these, these floods are likely to become more intense and more frequent. And I'm just wondering, it's funny the other day, why, why weren't these uh, road lines and, and train lines built <laughs> with climate change in mind? You know, it's just another, another case of wishful thinking, I think, and bad planning. Now, we also are speaking during the course of the pandemic and climate change and environmental damage is affecting the spread of diseases into the human population. Is that true? Uh, yes, but it's, comp it's complicated. I think in some cases it, it's making uh, infectious diseases in increasing and other times, other cases, it's reducing it. In general, the, the people think the burden is increasing from, from infectious diseases, but not as much as people once thought. So malaria is definitely uh, moving up to higher altitudes in places in, in Africa and Asia. But on the other hand, the burden of disease of malaria is greatly reduced in the last 20 or 30 years because of insecticide-treated bed nets. Um, there are a few places where malaria is probably becoming less transmittable because uh, mosquito, the habitats for mosquitoes are not as, not as favourable. But, but over, overall, um, oh, dengue fever is another example. It's, it's far less deadly than malaria. I mean, malaria still kills at least half a million people a year. Dengue fever kills probably just a few, a few hundred but it still gives you a nasty, a nasty, it's rarely fatal dengue fever, but it is increasing to affect potentially more people at higher high latitudes. So it's, it's now being observed in Nepal, whereas 30 or 40 years ago, 
Well, it might have been in the lowlands of Nepal, but never around Kathmandu. Um, the the pandemic's another story, of course. Uh, some people think that habitat change might increase so-called spillover of viruses from from uh, bats and and maybe other other creatures, but it's um, it's it's unclear actually where the, where the pandemic started from, and it, and it could well have been from laboratory experiments. Now, an interesting uh, side issue that I learned about in your chapter was that uh, healthcare itself has an environmental impact, and I could imagine a future. Uh, paleontologist going through the sedimentary layers of our current years and finding face masks, <laughs> uh, layers of face masks, but also things like chicken bones and so on. But uh, just talk me through a little bit about the impacts of healthcare itself on the environment. Well, of course, uh, hospitals and healthcare clinics are major users of electricity, and mostly that's st- even in Australia still generated by uh, by coal, actually, although some states are ahead of others and that, that clearly is something that could be fixed. But there's also a lot of use of disposable um, equipment and syringes and plastic and so on. And, uh, you know, for, for hygienic reasons, which is understandable, but things could be reduced if people cared enough. The, one of the contributors to our chapter is probably the world expert on anaesthetic gases, and some of, some of them uh, themselves are greenhouse gases and they escape. And there are often alternatives, so they, they, they should just be mandated. You should, should be considered as part of the price, you know, the environmental price. That, that goes back to how we define economic growth, of course, and ecological economics. So people just, the bean counters just look at the monetary price, they don't consider these other things. So there are um, anaesthetic gases, there's electricity, there's there's also perhaps the food like you know vegetarian diets are probably healthier and also have a lower uh, greenhouse gas footprint so perhaps they could be um, given more in hospitals and uh, another thing is instruments you know you'd think uh, a metal instrument um, should be should be, it could be re-sterilized sterilized and, re- and reused but often the instruments themselves are completely disposable with a with a high uh, environmental or ecological footprint. Given that uh, climate change is arriving with full force and probably worse than was predicted, is there anything we can do to, uh, to mitigate and to prepare for uh, its onset? Well, I spent the last 30 years trying to warn you know, colleagues in the academic literature, and as I said, when I, got a, I got arrested because I've gained frustrated at kind of how hopeless that was. Although we have seen climate change go from a sort of niche concern in the 1980s, including within health, to a, to a major concern, and yet still not, not enough, nowhere near enough, nowhere near enough being done. Um, so, so how what am I trying to say here? You know, we've been trying to get, we're trying to get health workers to say it's a problem. Uh, some of them do. There's a few more grants, but it's it's just nowhere near on the scale needed because the the forces that profit from business as usual are so overwhelmingly dominant 
And of course, the other thing is that these health and other consequences of climate change are still largely theoretical in the future. And what I worry about is policymakers and the prime minister and leader of the opposition and so on, they think, well, we've got time. We'll, we'll fix this in 20 or 30 years. We'll pass, we'll pass the buck to our successes. But the problem is, I think, as, as the issues from climate change and other effects arise, they're going to under also mind the, undermine the capacity of governance to deal with it. And I think you see this to some extent already. So rather than proper planning, it's just sort of piecemeal management day, day to day. And then before you know it, things are out of control. I, I think right. you're. I think you're saying that uh, instead of just bowing more, we should fix the hole in the side of the boat. Is that pretty much uh, your approach? Yeah. Well, well yeah. Um, and of course, that's an old adage in public health. You should you should put a fence around the top of the cliff rather than you know a series of ambulances at the bottom of the cliff where people have fallen off. But the trouble is to, to put this, uh, fix the hole on the side of the boat, you've, you've got to challenge all these vast number of vested interests who are saying, no, 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 um, the hole in the boat's still above waterline, just carry on, we'll fix that when we come to it. Uh, society's got... Um, something's, something's gone wrong with it, I think. We're, we're no longer seriously... We're no longer seriously listening to experts. We're no longer seriously, you know, planning ahead. We, we, we've got sort of um, Band-Aid solutions like the Glasgow COP or the Paris COP where we make all these pledges that we don't keep. A bit like the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, you just have this pretense of, of action. It's, it's, and, and so we're sort of drifting towards a, a catastrophe, I think, uh, an analogy I like to you, you know, it's it's like approaching World War Two, and you've got Churchill and maybe a few of his supporters saying, "A war's coming, we better prepare." But ninety percent of people are saying, "Well, no, just we'll deal with Hitler. We'll we'll worry about that when it happens." And I think with climate change, well, people like Will Stephan, who who contributed to to your book and so on, are saying we need to prepare, and yet. Nothing, nothing happens. Even the late, the, I suppose maybe don't be too party political, but the Labor Party is so ahead on social justice issues, but they are completely wedded to the mining expansion of the gas industry in Australia. They're, they're almost as bad as the Liberal Party. It's just appalling. Uh, Colin, it's a pretty grim picture that you paint. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Sorry to depress everybody.